Amen. Thank you so much, choir and orchestra and musicians, for setting the table and setting the stage for us to study the Word of God. And the old-time Baptist preacher said, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. All right? I hope that that resonated with you, that there is a story that has unfolded throughout all of history, and it is the kingdom of God, and one day we will see Jesus Christ reigning and ruling forever and ever and ever. Amen. Well, I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. And we are wrapping up our series on the Beatitudes. So I'll give you just a moment. We'll put these on the screen. But Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Let's read together the Word of God if you'll focus your attention there. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we come to the very last message in our Beatitude series. This is the eighth of the Beatitudes. And as we have studied these together, I want to say this. You have been so incredibly kind and gracious with your words. I've gotten emails and texts and, and just words along the way of people saying how blessed they've been by these passages of Scripture. And I've got to tell you, this study for me has been unbelievable. Uh, the Beatitudes have been fresh for me. They have motivated me. They have challenged me. They have at times convicted me. They've stretched me. And there have been a few times they've just absolutely filleted me. I mean, I was just laid bare looking at this life that Jesus calls us to and how woefully short my life often is. And I think definitely that's going to be the case with today's passage. It's going to challenge you. You may struggle through this one a little bit. I mean, after all, each week I've preached two messages. One has been on what the call is, and the second one was how to cultivate it. Well, I'm going to promise you right now, there will not be part two of this one. I'm not going to preach next week how to cultivate persecution in your life, okay? I'm not going to preach. It will find you. You don't need to go looking for it. You'll find trouble if you stand for Christ. You will have trouble in this world, Jesus said. So just take heart. We're not going to preach that next week. I am going to kind of point your attention in a little bit to your GPS, which is on the back of your listening guide, your sermon notes. We call it our great pray study. It's always just something that will take you a little farther in your investigation. And we'll talk about what do I do if I'm not being persecuted? Maybe you need to look at your life. And so that will give you some suggestion. But I want us to do today a final review. Now, some of you haven't been with us the whole time, but, but don't lose heart. We're going to take you through this. We talked about all of these things being attitudes that Christ wants us to embrace. He wants us to cultivate. He wants us to get as much of this into our lives as we possibly can in these first seven. And we started out with the idea of being poor in spirit. In a word, we called it spiritual bankruptcy. All right, fill that in. It means that you come to God recognizing you don't have what it takes. You can't earn heaven. You can't buy heaven. You're not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, handsome enough. You don't have the best uh, the, uh, pedigree that's good enough. You can't inherit it. You know, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher and his father was a Baptist preacher. That doesn't change your standing before God. 
you and I are spiritually bankrupt before God. We need help. And so when we recognize that all of our good is in him, that leads us to the second of the Beatitudes, and that's we begin to mourn our own sinfulness. And in one word, I would say it's repentance. We find out that we are woefully short and we repent. We just begin to mourn over our sin. But we don't just turn from something, we turn to something, and that moves us forward. Mourning my own sin is a recognition I'm spiritually bankrupt. I've sinned against God. I am not neutral in this matter. The reason that I'm separated from a loving, holy God is because of my sin, not in spite of it. I did this to me by choice. And so I stand before God in trouble. I am spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit. I mourn. And being poor in spirit and mourning over sin leads me to meekly submit to the will of God. I would say it this way, trust and obey. We spend a lot of time talking about meekness and it being power under control, kind of like a a horse with a bit and a bridle, that under the hand of a master, it was guided and it had incredible purpose and usefulness. And that's the beauty of the word that is used there for meekness. It's used to the hand. It means that you get to a place where you have submitted yourself and you're used to the hand of God. No longer like a wild animal roaming out on your own, but you are under the control of a loving, guiding master. So, poor in spirit, mourning our sin, and then ultimately meekly submitting, trusting and obeying God. Does that make sense? Yes or no? I gave you a picture that I want to go back to again and again. The picture was of root, shoot, fruit. And the idea is that there are three stages here in these Beatitudes. And those first three that I just gave you are the roots of the Christian life. You cannot be a Christian until you come to the end of yourself and recognize, I am spiritually bankrupt. You cannot be a Christian unless you turn to God, recognizing that you have sinned and you repent. You turn away from sin and in trust and obedience, you you move forward, submit Submitting yourself to God. So, poor in spirit, mourning sin, and meekly submitting, those three things are the root of the Christian life. It takes hold. It it stands firm. When the Word of God is implanted in your heart, that's what happens. Some of you have come into a church service, maybe in a revival or a vacation Bible school, or maybe you've never done this, but today you just hear the Spirit of God saying, I know in my heart that I, I just don't have it, and the Spirit of God is saying to you, you can have eternal life. You can have life that would be born, but the way that that happens is you recognize your inability, you mourn over your sin, repenting, and ultimately submitting yourself to God. Repent and believe, trust and obey. That is the root. Now, where does that grow? Well, it begins to grow up in life. If you've planted a seed, you begin to see a shoot that grows. And the shoot is very simply this. It is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Out of those roots grows the fruit, or rather the shoot of the life of a, a life that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And the beauty of this is that that deep longing, that it's a commitment um, that is the soul of a godly life. That when you begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you grow. And where life grows, it is the shoot. And out of those roots grow the shoot into this hunger, and this, this hunger ultimately bears fruit. What kind of fruit, Pastor? Well, let's go to the final one. We've talked about it for the last six weeks. 
Out of this life will become a merciful, tender heart. A merciful, tender heart. You also develop a pure heart and a peaceable heart. Let me kind of unpack those for just a second. The Bible says, blessed are the merciful. They'll they'll be shown mercy. It means that we become forgiving. It means that we are tender toward other people, that we recognize our own sin, where we were, our own hellbound race that we sang about, and yet we begin to see God has freed us. And so we release others from grudges and from bitterness, and we don't hang on to those things. So that is the life that grows out of this Christian life of root and shoot. We also develop a pure heart. It's focused on one thing, just a will to do the will of the Father. That there's not double-mindedness. There's not spiritual stagnation. And ultimately, for the last two weeks, we've talked about how we become peacemakers. And the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. That those who have so much inner contentment and peace begin to share with others. And they come to a place where their very presence brings peace. You ever been around that person? They're just so content in the Lord that they bring a sense of shalom, a sense of peace all around them. That's who we're called to be. We're called to be peacemakers. And last week I said to you that the ultimate activity of peacemaking is helping someone have peace with God because they are separated from a holy God. And my life ought to point other lives to that place where they would trust Jesus. All of this is simply review. (laughs) Root, shoot, fruit. That's what Jesus is calling you to live, a life that would grow and develop and blossom into wonderful fruit of purity and mercy and forgiveness and peace. That's what he desires for us. Now, here are all the things that I'm to cultivate. We've, we've called this series traction. We're just saying we can get momentum in building toward this. But what will come of such a life? What will this life look like? I mean, ultimately, if I try to do all of these things, what is the end result? If I pursue the life that Christ is calling me to, what should I expect? What lies ahead? Jesus here in our text gives us two definitive answers. Number one, you will be persecuted by the world. And number two, you will be blessed by God. You need to write those things down. We're going we're gonna to really peel this back this morning. This may be a struggle for us to believe that God would have for us suffering in this world. You know, some of us don't have enough faith to believe that God can and will heal a situation or ease suffering. But more than that, some of us don't have enough faith to walk through the suffering if we understand and sense that it's God's will for us to do it. We, we'll tap out on that. Well, I guess God just didn't move yet in this situation. And we almost pray, Kesarasara, whatever happens will happen. And when we suffer, we beg God to take us out of it. And maybe, just maybe, God's using some things in our lives to shape us like sandpaper, to take the rough edges off and to make us look like Jesus. Jesus says very pointedly, you'll be persecuted by the world and you'll be blessed by God if you follow him. Our text again, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Three different times Jesus uses the word persecuted. I I want to kind of elaborate on that a little bit. That word literally means harassed. It means opposed. It means ill-treated. 
Jesus says, if you will in this life pursue godliness, this is what's going to happen to you. You should expect it. Now, church family, everybody lean in a bit because you need to hear what I am about to say. The world will not thank you for being a Christian. Let me say that again. The world will not thank you for being a Christian. They may acknowledge the fact that you're a nice guy. They may acknowledge the fact that you're a sweet gal. But when you take a biblical stand, the world will hate you. You need to know that. You need to recognize that. They may recognize your charitable giving spirit, but I can promise you this. If you take a biblical stand to live for Christ, the world will hate you, and Jesus promised it so. Don't take it up with me. Take it up with him. He said that. The world will not love the church. Think about it with me, church family. The world will tolerate the church with suspicion at best, or it will show open hostility at worst. Look at John 3, 20 with me. I think we've got it on the screen. Jesus said, all who do evil hate what? Let's try it again. All who do evil hate what? The light. Why? Because the light exposes their sins. It says they refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. You need to understand this. Evil loves darkness. My grandmother used to say all the time, nothing good happens after midnight. They used to say, you need to just come on in and be at home. There's something about things happening at night. There's something about things that happen in the dark. And darkness cloaks evil. But think about this. If light is shining to you and then in you, it will shine through you. And people will hate you because of that light because the light of Christ exposes You ever flipped on a switch or turned over a rock and seen bugs or roaches scurry? They're in the dark and the light exposes. The light begins to disinfect, if you will. And when it does, a, a sinner has to suppress his own conscience to sustain what he's doing. For a sinner to remain in sin, they, they sear their conscience. And when you take a stand, all of a sudden, it's like holding a mirror up and your life reflects light to them and they don't like it. And that's biblical. The, the world that's around us will not like it. A godly colleague, a godly neighbor, a godly classmate will always bring light that sinners are trying to avoid. So don't expect to be thanked for living a godly life. In your business, in your school, even in your home. Let me take it a step further in your church. There are some people that are content to live nice and kind lives, but don't think about living a godly life. And when you begin to move yourself toward this place of approaching godliness and you take a stand on Scripture, I'm not talking about being a fundamental jerk. I'm not talking about being obnoxious, being a Pharisee. I'm saying when you live in love and pursue being peaceable and pure and merciful and forgiving and brokenhearted over your sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the world will hate you. Jesus said that. Now, pastor, where am I supposed to put that? What category do I fit that in? Well, we're going to talk through this today, but I want you to understand that this is a pattern of persecution that's happened all throughout the Bible. 
the very first family we see it. Here's Adam and Eve, and they have a little boy, Cain, and they say, boy, we're excited about our little baby boy. He's going to be, hopefully, uh, some redemption. He'll, he'll, he'll right the wrongs of our lives. But Cain persecuted his own brother. In fact, he murdered him. Now, can you imagine? I mean, I know you parents have got sibling rivalries to deal with. Stop poking your brother. Stop punching your sister. Don't pull her hair. Don't speak to him like that. Don't talk to him like that. They're hoping, oh, we're going to have a little baby brother, and Cain and Abel are going to get along so well, and Cain kills Abel. Why? 1 John 3.12, you may want to jot that down somewhere. It says this, his own deeds were evil. What he was doing was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. The New Testament recognizes that the Old Testament pattern started all the way back there in the very first family. Abel did what was right. He listened to the Lord. He made the right sacrifice, and Cain killed him for it. It exposed his own heart of evil. Don't expect to be thanked for a godly life. Now, we move on. This pattern of harassment and opposition carries forward. I I wish that I had time to invest all of these, but listen for just a moment. Joseph was persecuted by his brother, sold into slavery in Egypt, cast into prison for his righteousness when he got there. Moses was reviled again and again. Samuel was rejected. Elijah was despised and persecuted. Nehemiah was oppressed, defamed, depressed, and thrown into jail, the weeping prophet. Stephen was stoned to death. Peter and John were cast into prison. The apostle Paul and his Christian life and ministry was one long series of bitter and unending persecutions. Beaten, jailed, shipwrecked, left for dead, talked about, lied about, maligned. Why? Because he stood for truth and that truth is light. You and I need to begin to see this. It's not just individual people in the Bible. It's the churches in the Bible. Not long ago, we studied from the book of 1 Peter, and 1 Peter 4.12, I'll put it on the screen, says this, in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Christians, listen to me. You can put nice little phrases on your coffee mug I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you. He was talking to a people that were in captivity in Babylon. Don't take it out of context. It makes a nice little t-shirt or a nice little coffee mug, but you and I get so mad at God when bad things come and Jesus promised they're coming. Why would we not listen to that? Why would we not expect it? Why would we not move into it with a a heart of awareness? I'm not saying embrace it and look after it. I'm not saying, hey, I need to go for it. I need to cultivate persecution. You take a stand and you're the one then. You're going against the flow. If you take a stand, the whole world comes at you. Paul said it to Timothy this way. 2 Timothy 3.12. You may want to jot some of these addresses down. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Say it again. Persecuted. Romans 8, 7. Why has this happened? Well, the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it what? It never will. 
Our sinful flesh is hostile to God. I hear people all the time that are lost. They don't go to church. They have no uh, hunger or thirst for righteousness. And they say, you know, pastor, me and God are cool. We got our own little agreement. (laughs) No, you don't. The Bible says that we are enemies with God until we wave the white flag of surrender and say, I give up. And when we say, I give up, go back to our list. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I mourn over my sin. I meekly submit, trusting and obeying. Now I gain a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And when that happens, it grows up into fruit. I'm peaceable, I'm pure, and I'm merciful. I'm forgiving. It changes fundamentally my life. Think about the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, we've thought about biblical characters. We've thought about the churches, but Jesus himself, he personified all of these very characteristics. What happened to him? The Bible says very pointedly in John 15, 20, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute me. You. So these eight beatitudes, or this eighth beatitude, sets an expectation for us that if we follow it, quite clearly reflected throughout all the Bible, throughout all the churches, and even in the life of Jesus for the normal Christian life, those who follow Christ will be blessed by God and hated by the world. Does that make sense, yes or no? Pastor, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, let me talk to you for just a moment about two kinds of persecution. Persecution of the hand and persecution of the tongue. Persecution of the hand and persecution of the tongue. Persecution of the hand makes obvious sense. There will be people that will physically enact violence, imprisonment, even martyrdom. Just a few short years ago, some friends of ours from North Mississippi were on a mission trip in South Asia. It was a trip that I had taken several times. And all of a sudden, we got word that they had been rounded up by the police in that country and that a mob had dragged the national leaders out into the street and beaten them. This isn't some far-off fanciful tale. These are friends of mine that I served on staff with, that I lived with and worked around. They were dear friends of mine. And for hours, radio silence, we could get nothing. Can you imagine being stuck in a jail in a country like India? Can you imagine being stuck, not being able to speak the language, watching those Christians from that nation who had literally been beaten and you don't know your fate? It's not just in foreign countries. But it happens extensively. Years ago, I preached again in South Asia in another country. And while I was there, about 80% of that congregation had been thrown out of their homes. One of the men uh, that was there, a godly young man, a brave young man, he's been beaten and imprisoned over and over again. And yet he continues to share the gospel. Our IMB bought him a motorcycle and he goes into all of these mountainous regions to share the gospel. His father, who is a high caste Brahmin and Hindu, said to him, you are dead to me, but has repeatedly offered him sums of thousands and thousands of dollars. If you would renounce Christ and come home, we would embrace you as a son. It's not just in foreign countries. We have extensive ties to work in the Intermountain West. We've worked in Utah and Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. And in working in those places, we realize that many of our church planners are persecuted by the Mormon influence. You see, truth always points out error. 
And the lie of Mormonism was pointed out by the truth of Christianity. And many of our very missionaries, our Southern Baptist missionaries that are serving, have their kids sitting at the end of the bench on the ball team. They have their kids failing classes and graded harder. We've seen parents that could not buy groceries in town because the Mormon grocery store owner would not let them. I know that's a bold thing for me to say. And if you want to talk about it, we certainly can because we saw kind of behind the curtain of the errors that are there. We're not of the same kingdom. And when Jesus Christ said, you will be persecuted if you follow me. And he said, you'll be blessed. He said, expect it. You'll be reviled. They'll say things about you. They'll do things to you. And we see it in scripture. So what do we do with this? How do we address this? Where do we put this together? You need to hear in our lifetime, since the death of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, 43 million Christians have become martyrs. Over 50% of those in the last century alone. More than 200 million Christians face persecution every day today. I'm not talking about history. I'm talking about right now. There are brothers and sisters that over the last 24 hours or 12 hours or so and into the next 12 hours, this Lord's Day, will meet in clandestine places and they'll sing whispering because they're fearful that they'll get caught and they'll be driven out and they'll be beaten or imprisoned or killed. We know of many people in the nation of China that have been arrested. They have disappeared literally from existence because of their Christian faith. 60% of those 200 million are children and teenagers. Every day, this is from Voice of the Martyrs, every day 300 people are killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. So that is persecution of the hand. But to revile means to slander. It means to insult. We might call it verbal abuse, mocking, slandering, intimidating, tormenting. Now, can I do something real quick? If you're a student here today, raise your hand. A student at any level, all right? We have middle schoolers and high schoolers. We've got some elementary school students. But if you're a college student or otherwise, I wanna speak to you for a moment. And I want to speak very pointedly and very clearly to our middle schoolers and high schoolers especially, but even up to college. If people know that you are a Christian, you will get opposition. Would you agree with that? Have you experienced that? It may not be a lot. And I wish that I could protect you from it as your pastor. Your parents wish they could protect you from it. But the reality is we can't protect you from all of it. Satan has his eye on you and he won't give you a break just because you're a teenager. You don't get a pass till you're 21 and then he says, oh, I'm going after him. No, he's gunning for you. And parents and grandparents, let me say a word to you. You need to be praying for our Christian sons and daughters, our Christian grandsons and granddaughters. We need to be pouring our hearts out before the Lord and praying for this upcoming generation. But I want to say this to you. Different people are going to have different experiences, but here's what you can expect, students. If you are known to be a Christian, you can expect to be mocked at some level for believing in Christ, maybe even scorned for it. How could you possibly believe in a creator? I mean, everything they're learning in school is pointing the other direction. How can you be so narrow-minded about this or that? 
And can I just tell you, it doesn't take us long to realize that society is pushing ungodly ideologies about sexual orientation, about race, about gender, and on and on. And the world will push back if you take a stand. If you're committed, students, listen, listen. If you're committed to sexual purity, and I hope that you are, and you hold back from all the sexual experimentation that is becoming so normal in the high school experience and culture, people will think it's strange if you live differently. They'll say you're weird. They may make fun of you because of it. When other students know that you're a Christian, they will make your life hard. They may say things hurtful. And the Bible says that here in Matthew 5, 11, utter all kinds of evil against you. They make, make you feel like a social outcast, and that's not easy. Understand what is happening and why. They see light in you, and they don't like it. It's convicting to them. When we take a stand, the world will not like it. But church family, we better not be a stumbling block to people. We need to clear out every stumbling block all the way to the cross. That's offensive enough. Jesus said the cross would be offensive and people would stumble over it. They have to come smack dab up against the reality. There's something wrong with me. See, beatitude one. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I can't do anything about my life. And Jesus said, here I am. I died for you. I've given to you free and clear pardon in and through my blood. Let me say this, students, and I really want you to hear this. Your unbelieving friends can laugh you into hell, but they can't do a thing to get you out. That may bear repeating. Parents, y'all need to hear this. Your children's friends can laugh them into hell, but they can't do a dadgum thing to get them out of hell. Only Jesus can do that. And you better lead your children to be holy, not just happy. Don't give them all of their heart's desire. Give them his heart's desire. Amen? The great Scottish preacher Colin Smith said that he recognized God's call in his life as a young teenager. He was a, a very sharp mind. And one of his teachers asked him his senior year of high school, what do you plan on doing with your life? And he said, I want to be a pastor. To which that science teacher replied, what a complete waste of a perfectly good brain. Pressure. Later, Smith found out that 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 teacher had a sister who was a Christian missionary in China and she'd faced severe persecution and this man felt guilt and fear over the impotence of his own faith. It exposed his own weak belief that this young man would be so bold as to say, God is working in my life and I want to preach the gospel. Your unbelieving friends desperately need a witness and I've seen this. I've watched as God put in students and adults uh, the, the courage to make an unpopular stand against opposition and God's hand was in it and he meant it and used it for good. And while they were ridiculed, they were blessed. How does that work? Well, I, I want us to go a little further at what Jesus is saying here. We're gonna wrap this up. Jesus is telling us here, there's a great principle and you need to see this. Opposition helps you grow as a Christian. Everybody say that with me. Opposition helps you grow as a Christian. I want you to personalize it and not say you, but say me. Let's say it again. 
Opposition helps me grow as a Christian. You see, when we face opposition, we know where we stand. When we face opposition, we recognize what Acts 14, 22 says. It is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Ask any older Christian about their experience and they'll tell you the same thing. Ask any of these senior adults. Students, you ought to go find a senior adult in our church and they will tell you, I can promise you, their experience is when times were tough, they depended on the Lord and they grew. When times are difficult, their faith in Christ grew. Persecution has a sanctifying effect in our lives and in our church, a strengthening effect for the believer. I I, I just believe we've gotten comfortable here in the U.S. There's little persecution And because there's little persecution, there are dwindling numbers of conversions. We in the last 10 years have baptized less people than we have in almost the last 100 as Southern Baptists. It's been incredible to think. I believe that there's coming a day in short order when persecution will begin and with it a flood of conversions, a revival like we've never seen. There's coming a day in short order that if I stand and call homosexuality a sin, I may very well go to jail for hate crime. There's coming a day that you take certain stands. Maybe there's a day, and this isn't a political statement, it's the climate we live in. It's spiritual. There's coming a day that they may say, you know what, you can give all the money to your church you want to, but you're not getting a tax deduction. Do you think giving will go down for some? Why do some people give? Because they can get a tax deduction. What does it look like if they begin to tax every single property around the world uh, or in our United States and tax all of the buildings? Can you imagine what would happen to the ministries of Lord Jesus Christ? You say, well, they would shrink. Yeah, but they'd get purer. Because there's a lot of fluff that we get involved in that would go away. And we would say, we need to make the main thing the main thing. There's no doubt in my mind that the culture in which we live today is becoming more and more hostile toward Christians and churches. For 200 years or more, our country that we love so much was kind and supportive toward Christianity, but that's changing fast. 80% of our country today would say that they are Christians, but what's the level of spirituality? Unbelievably low. If God allows us to suffer for our faith as we have not known before, we should pray that he would use it as a means for reviving and purifying the church. This beatitude shows us how it works. When persecution comes, you realize you don't have what it takes. And you repent, you cry out, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) We're going right back through our list. It's Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. You see, if we start getting pressure on us, we'd say, oh God, we can't do anything about it. And he said, you're right, I can. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They will inherit the kingdom of God as theirs. I love this. It moves on and on. Out of that becomes a hunger that leads to a pure heart and a peaceable heart, and it spirals upward. Persecution produces two outcomes. We've said this in a few ways, but I want you to see this. Great blessing and great reward. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you. How can you keep saying that, pastor? Well, one, Jesus said it. But it's true. Think about this. 
There's a fellowship with Christ and an anointing that happens when difficulty presses in on our lives. It's greater than anything you can experience in a season of ease. I love this picture. Samuel Rutherford was a pastor 150 years ago, and he said, I never knew by my nine years of preaching so much of Christ's love as he taught me in Aberdeen for six months of imprisonment. He said, in six months' time in jail, I learned a whole lot more than I did of nine years preaching. I learned that Jesus loved me. Paul talked about it in Philippians 3, the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus that we move into that place. We've got an incredible picture of this in the Old Testament. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What happened to them? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. And when the king looked over into the fiery furnace, he said, wait a minute. One, two, three, four. Hold on, guys. Shadrach, check. Meshach, check. Abednego, check. Who is that? And he looked and he peered in and he said, hold on. He has the appearance of the Son of Man. You see, in the midst of the fiery furnace, Jesus walked with them. He was right there in their midst. Oh, it was Daniel in the lion's den that God would shut the mouths of the lion. It is Daniel that walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus walks with us in that place. Jesus walks with us in a place of trial, in a place of turmoil, in a place of pain. And it is because he identified with our suffering. He left heaven and came to earth and he died. Why would we think that Jesus would die so that we could have an easier life? He died so that we could become holy. And one day, all sin, all suffering will be put aside. He will wipe away every tear. But from this light and temporary moment of time, we need to recognize you take a stand, and I can promise you, you'll be hated by the world, and you'll be blessed and rewarded by God. Again, as we consider this idea that Christ is with you in the flames of affliction, let me give you three quick final thoughts, and, and you may want to jot them down. This wasn't a part of your listening guide, but I just began to think about this. Persecution allows Christians to have fellowship with the Lord, fellowship with Christ. He walks with us. When we're surrendered, I, I love this. Paul said, everything that I gave up, I count as rubbish, as garbage, as, as dung. He said, it's all worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. Secondly, persecution builds up your faith. It doesn't only give you a fellowship with Christ, it builds up your faith. It's good for believers. James argues it this way. He says that a Christian's faith, when it's tested, develops endurance, and it helps us to mature. It's like steel that's being tempered in a fire being forged. Trials and persecution serve to temper our character. I love this. Peter said of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's easy to be hateful in opposition to evil. Would you agree with that? It's easy to be snarky with a person that's working in a customer service line. It's easy for us to demand our rights and push our way, and that is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is, you know what? I'm gonna take the right stand in love and let the chips fall where they fall, and I'll leave it up to God. Thirdly, I want you to see this. Christian persecution ultimately helps us to learn the value of community. 
How many of you would say in your darkest times of hurting or suffering that the church rallied around you? Anybody ever been there? That's my story. That's my testimony. I'm so thankful for a church family that loves me and cares for me. But think about this. Conflict with the world can bring faithful children of God together in an encouraging and supportive way that they might not have known otherwise. Hardship can stimulate, if you will, the Lord's people to greater resolve to love and comfort one another and to lift one another up. Even in the face of persecution, we can press on. We can thank God for his grace. We can praise him with his patience toward us that the middle of what we're going through may just be his overarching plan to help us to learn to be like him all the more. We can express gratitude for those whom we love in the Lord and stand with us in times of distress. And we can pray for the world that would accuse, misuse, and abuse us. You know, Jesus would come to that place a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, and he would say that we're to love our enemies and pray blessings over them. That's hard to do. We saw an incredible story. A movie is coming out soon called Kidnapped, and there was a a little boy that was kidnapped, and his attacker actually stabbed him multiple times and left him for dead. And we met him at the Southern Baptist Convention and got to hear his story. And it was an incredible thing because years later, without going into all the detail of the story, he actually found that man that did it. He was on his deathbed. And as a Christ follower who had lost an eye from the attack, he went to that hospital and he sat bedside in hospice with the man who had destroyed much of his life as he knew it. And he forgave him. And he led him to Christ. And he held his hand as he died. How many of us know much of that level of the blessing of God? That we would be merciful, pure, peacemakers who would recognize that when we take a stand for God, it automatically aligns us at odds with the world. We will be hated by the world. And we will be blessed and rewarded by God. There's more to this life than this life. You know that, right? The best is yet to come. I want to challenge you this morning to consider, to ponder these things about your own life. Maybe today, for the very first time, you realize that that seed has never taken root in your heart. You know, I don't have what it takes. If you're there, you're in a great place because there are people here that love you and they would gladly share with you from the Word of God what to do next. What did I say was next? We repent, we turn away from our sin, and we trust and obey. We simply submit ourselves to God. Today, you can have eternal life granted to you, given to you, free and clear, because Jesus paid for it. He bought your pardon with his blood. He died so that you wouldn't have to. People get all confused about this. Let me give you just a thimble full of theology. This is what you need to understand. Death means separation. We are separated from the very source of life. I've used this illustration over and over again. Go out to a garden and cut a rose. It looks beautiful. It's still got color. It still smells and looks vibrant, but it's dead. Why? Because it's cut off from the source of life. 
That's your condition. And you say, well, I, I just have lived. I'm not dead. No, you're dead spiritually. You're separated from God. The Bible even says you walked in your transgressions and your sins. How can a dead man walk? We're walking physically, but we're separated from the source of God the source of life from God. He is gracious to even allow you to live another day. Why would you live another day? So that you could trust him and be reunited with him in and through Jesus Christ. Today, if the need of your life is salvation, I want you, in a moment we're gonna sing, I want you to get up from where you are and simply walk to the front. We're not gonna embarrass you in any way. We have a group of people that we call encouragers. They're simply prayer partners. They would love to take God's word with you and pray with you and share with you the good news of eternal life in and through Jesus. Maybe the need of your life today is to join this church. We would love for you to unite with us and serve with us in being an army of peacemakers, an army of merciful people, forgiving and loving our city and the world. And if that's the need, you do the same thing. When we sing, you just stand and come to the front and we'll introduce you to one of our encouragers and they will share with you how to Uh, walk through that decision let's all stand together I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing Father thank you for today thank you for this word bless this time of decision in Jesus name Amen